1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Discover Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation, to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. <laughs>
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I have once again put together my Planet of the Apes panel, which includes Mr. Richard Handley. Hello. And Mr. Zaki Hassan. Damn you all to hell. (laughs) (laughs) And we were just talking before we started actually recording the show about our Planet of the Apes love. And Zaki, as I was saying, you know, it's my understanding that this is your favorite movie of all time. Is that accurate or am I I, uh, overstating it? You're 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 understating. It's my favoritist movie of all time. <laughs> and just quickly, and you've been on before, but just quickly by way of background, I know uh, I find your your uh, your background to be well. Both of you, I find your backgrounds just to be impressive as far as your qualifications to be on my very amateurish show. Uh, so why don't you give your 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 work credentials? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, I've been a film critic for uh, coming up on 25 years at this point, which is just a crazy thing to say out loud. Uh, I'm currently writing for the San Francisco Chronicle in the past. I've written for Huffington Post and the Philly Weekly. I'm a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and I am co-host of the Movie Film Podcast with TV writer Brian Hall. And there are all those who call you professor, are there not? That's true. I uh, When I'm not doing all that, I, I teach uh, classes at San Jose State University. I teach uh, uh, mass communication and communication studies. That's pretty That's I think that's a, a pretty good background. Uh, you know, especially when you compare it to mine, I took some film classes in high school and college. So. And I do a movie podcast. <laughs> Which is the most important part of, of all of this. So, and Rich, uh, you have a qu- quite the Planet of the Apes pedigree yourself, so why don't you just give a quick background on, on your uh, history? Okay. Um, I've uh, written or contributed or edited to a couple dozen books on pop culture, um, uh, including a number that are based on Planet of the Apes, a timeline book called Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, a, 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 um, a chronology, uh, a, 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 an encyclopedia rather called Lexicon of the Planet of the Apes, a couple of years ago, I co-edited and spearheaded um, Tales from the Forbidden Zone, which was a short fiction anthology with Jim Beard for Titan Books. Uh, I worked on um, Boom Studios' four-volume Planet of the Apes archive series, which reprinted the old Marvel comics. And uh, I worked on a pair of books for Sequart with Joe Baronado, uh, essay anthologies discussing all aspects of the franchise. Um, and, uh, beyond that, a lot of the writing that I do is, is for the Star Trek franchise. And as I sit here right now at my little computer desk, I can just look over on the bookcase right next to it and see my, my copy of Timeline of the Planet of the Apes, the definitive unauthorized chronology. Although I should point out that it becomes less definitive as each year goes by because (laughs) I believe that book came out in 2008. And uh, at that point, the current trilogy of films did not exist and neither did the Boom Studios comics. And so every day I look out there and go, well, not every day. That's that's really seriously (laughs) hyperbole. But occasionally I look at the book and say. Yeah, there was a point when that covered everything. (laughs) (laughs) Time, Time for time for volume two, Rich. Oh, and one, the one other thing, uh, since, not, since you asked about pedigree, I'm currently um, 
working on a chapter of uh, Ed Gross's Planet of the Apes Revisited. He's he's reissuing that, and I'm writing a chapter. Nice. Yeah, the update. That's version. awesome. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I was I was very very flattered and psyched to be asked to be a part of that. So that was cool. And and let let me just just say one thing. You know, I I uh, found out about uh, timeline of the Planet of the Apes just through you know looking online and came across my radar. I ordered it. I ordered the Lexicon book. I, I love them. They're sitting. I'm looking at them on my shelf right now as well. And I just want to say it's been one of the pleasures of my life that in the years since then, you know, I've collaborated with Rich. Uh, I get to call Rich a friend. And that's just something that's very cool to me that here we are uh, on the same show getting to talk about this, uh, uh, you know, this franchise that we both have such affinity for. Right back at you, Professor. <laughs> Thanks. And I appreciate you both making the time to talk to me about it. Because, as I said, my background is, is purely amateurish, but I think, you know, if nothing else, my love of, of movies and all comes through. And that's, 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 where, that's where whatever cred I get, that's where, where I'm getting it from. So I'll just take what I can. And, that's uh, the good it's, stuff. It's, it is a, and I, you know, it's a pleasure. Man. Well, the, the pleasure <laughs> of doing a show like this is that I get to reach out to guys like you and have you on. And you know, get to talk to guys with like interests and, uh, you know, just share some ideas and all. And, uh, you know, I, I never pictured years ago that I'd have all these friends around the country and even in other countries now that I've never met face to face. And it's just, it still boggles my mind, you know, even though it's been years now that I'm doing this. <laughs> it, it, it is a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, there was a point where to be someone's friend, you fell into one of two categories. It was actually somebody who you'd actually physically met in life, or it was a pen pal. Yeah, like, this, there, is, there, this is the really modern day pen idea pal. That you could have 1,200 friends and you've never met them, right? That, that was, <laughs> that, in the 80s, that would have just been a very strange, that would have been called a cult. <laughs> so, the, the the online world has completely changed the uh, the idea of what friendship is, and I know what you mean because um, the vast majority of people on my Facebook friends list I've never met, but a lot of them, you guys included, I would say, oh yeah, they're friends of mine, which and wouldn't then, have made any sense twenty years ago. Then there there is what I call perceived intimacy uh, that comes with podcasting. That if you put enough content out there and you put enough of your personality into it the people who listen to it feel like they know you and i think they even have a legitimate case for you know an argument that they do know you uh but you don't know them mm. <laughs> so it's it's a very wow. strange situation <laughs> i think you just summed up why uh tv and movie stars end up with stalkers actually yeah i guess that is true. yeah good point I mean, that, because call, yeah. you, watch, you watch somebody on television for hours and hours and hours on end, you see them in interviews, you you see them on talk shows, you get a sense for what they're like, and if you just happen to be uh, five cards short of a deck, you assume this person's in love with you and that you've known them for years. <laughs> uh, and it makes me question myself, because as we were talking before we started recording, I was saying it's been, whatever, close to a year since the last time we spoke, or however long, but the fact that I, I listen to Zachy and Brian about once a week makes me feel like, well, we haven't <laughs> lost touch. But meanwhile, that doesn't mean that they've been exposed to me. So, <laughs> it, it is a strange, strange thing. I, I, I don't know if you guys could tell me if you've ever run into this, but I actually have run into that, an element of that, and it was a little disturbing. I, I um. 
I'm you know the re- I think social media is an amazing thing for people in our field in that it, it allows you. <laughs> I was going to say to expose yourself, but please, please don't do that on social media. Um, <laughs> but it it allows you to uh, to um, to network and to meet people and to meet your readers and to get the word out about what you do. And it makes the world a much smaller place. But the truth is, I've also had a couple of situations where people assumed we were closer than we are. <laughs> And it, I don't know if you guys have run into that, but it can be a very wow. awkward thing. And I've actually met some listeners at conventions, and for me, it hasn't happened so much that I could really give you a, you know, a huge picture of it. But for the most part, it's always been a pleasant experience for me so far. Oh, oh 99.9% of the time it's pleasant. But every now and then I'm just like... I haven't ooh. had that point oh oh one. That's That's where I've been really lucky. Yeah. How about you, Zach? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was, Paul, I was just saying, there's actually a couple of people who I've met that way who, over time, have become good friends. Oh, okay. Maybe I just need to give the stalkers more time. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're my my, I, my potential I, soulmates. I'm thinking that's. I've, I'm thinking I've that's a big very, no. <laughs> I, I've been lucky in that I've never had that happen. Although one thing that was kind of cool. This is not a. This is not a bad story. It's a cool story is I had a student a couple of years ago who uh, she had been in my class for, for a few, you know, it's like a four month class. So maybe halfway through, she's like, excuse me, like after class, she comes in, this is a public speaking class too. She, she's like, are you the Zachy from the movie film podcast? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, I've been listening to that for years and I didn't realize you were my teacher. Oh, how funny. Uh, she didn't yeah, recognize yeah. the voice. Which is weird, right? And I was like, wow, I guess I sound different like when I'm in professor mode, you know? The truth is we also sound different on uh, broadcasted than we do in person, so that may, that might That's be. That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, what, the person that I was thinking of when I was saying that there are times when I'm going, yike, I had a person, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, a person I'd interacted with maybe three or four times. It was pleasant interactions. I didn't have a problem with this individual but this person contacted me and said uh i wrote a book and i need you to read it <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. and i thought you know look if i know you i'm going to you know i'll certainly consider that i'm more than happy to do favors for friends but like i'm not even sure who you are i had to like i had to look up this person and go who oh right yeah sure oh. i'm gonna read your 500 page book for free why not you know, and, and it's, it's uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I think that there's a, a false sense of intimacy that can be that, that can develop online. But you know what? I, I, I get why it happens, because we're all united in our passions. Um, the very reason that I know Zachy and the very reason that we're doing this kind of this podcast is because we all are passionate about the same things. And so I could see how somebody who might be maybe a little socially awkward might might run with it a little too far and I don't begrudge them at all because I'm, you know, I'm happy to know them, but you know, it, it can be a little scary. Well, and I would say that that is a good segue for us to get at what we are passionate about, which in this case is the 1968 film planet of the apes. And as I am aware, uh, Zaki did not see this in 1968 cause he did not exist. And Rich didn't see this in 1968 because they would have had to take him out of a cradle to do it. 
<laughs> but you know, I, I, I can't rule out that I did, but I have to think that my mom probably was not carrying newborn me into the theater to see a movie about apes, but I, I could be wrong. It's po- My mother was a diehard Planet of the Apes fan. The only reason I'm into it is because of her. So I cannot rule that out. <laughs> but I, I have a specific memory of my dad taking me and my older brother, or one of my older brothers, to see Planet of the Apes. And to this day, I wonder exactly what his motivation was. Did he, and I'll never know, did he say to himself, here's a movie I want to see, and I think, you know, the boys will be okay with it, so let's go? Or was it just, you know, I don't think I'm going to like this, but it's a good movie for my boys? You know, I'm not sure which one it was, but I do think he enjoyed it, ultimately. Uh, And I loved it from day one. I mean, I guess I was five years old at the time, and I just ate it up. Uh, to me, I don't know, it was just such an experience. You know, I've said many times when people talk about Star Wars and what it's meant to them, people who were born, you know, around 72, 73, and say Star Wars, you know, kind of defined their childhood. Uh, And I say, well, for me, I call Star Wars Planet of the Apes. Because in the, you know, in, in my early years at five years old seeing this and then you know into my teens watching the sequels on tv and sitting in front of the tv with a cassette recorder and and you know recording the sound from it and always having this fantasy in my mind of having a movie projector and being able to watch these movies wherever i want and then eventually having the ability to do that you know when they started with the technology to have vcrs and dvd players and whatnot uh this was my franchise and continues to this point. And that's where we get back to a conversation we were having before we recorded, where I don't feel I've grown up despite the fact that, you know, I've now, uh, you know, now, now that I'm well into middle age, I still have the same likes and dislikes as when I was a young, very young man. Uh, And I still have a love of this movie. And when it comes on, I stop and I watch it, and I could tell you I most recently watched it about three weeks ago. So it's still on my regular viewing list, along with the sequels, Uh, and much like you, Rich, it's all of them except the Tim Burton one. (laughs) I'm in the minority in that I don't dislike any of them, and that includes the Burton film. I just don't love it. I... I, I can endlessly rewatch all of them. The Burton film has some moments that I think are actually quite good, but they're mixed in with some moments that are just kind of jaw-droppingly bad. And uh, and so I, I can't say that I, I hate it. I'm the same way with Star Trek films. There's not a single one of them I won't watch. And the same goes with James Bond films. However, if you put me in a room and said, you have to watch the Tim Burton film and Star Trek V and die another day, and you can't get up till you finish, I would probably go, damn it. And I would do it, you know. But uh, See, I, don't, I don't want to fall too far off, of course, <laughs> yeah, but I still, to this day, think die another day gets a bad rap. Yeah. I don't think it's nearly as bad as people <laughs> have retroactively made it. Yeah. Well, do a Bond podcast sometime. I'd love to jump in with you on that one. All right. Yeah, you're more than welcome. I have done a couple of Bond episodes. But uh, there, are, there will be more to come, and you can join us when we do them. Uh, you, you are absolutely welcome to. Um, I, I, early on in this show, did the Tim Burton movie. 
uh, and I had be- I had seen it in a movie theater when it first came out, and I had watched the commentary for it when the DVD came out because I wanted to hear Burton explain what he was thinking when he did certain things in the movie, and I otherwise had not watched it until I rewatched it to do the episode on here. And when I did, I was less vitriolic towards it. Uh, I think I I, I rated it a Jaws 3, which I anticipated rating it to Jaws 4. I I think time has been a little kind to it. And I know because I know Zachy is very passionate about the films, too. I'd be interested in hearing his take on this. But I I think when I think uh, it's one of those movies like Star Trek V, where as time goes by, people are more able to appreciate the scenes that work and just sort of roll their eyes at the the ones that don't, as opposed to letting them kill the entire viewing experience. And I, I think that's how it is with me. Yeah. Well, much like you, I haven't seen a Star Wars movie or a uh, James Bond movie that I don't enjoy. Yeah, and, I mean... And I, I can even I, say I, that about Planet of the Apes now, because I did have some enjoyment with the Tim Burton one when I reviewed it. Yeah, I uh, there there are a couple of Star Wars films I don't enjoy. Star Trek is because <laughs> I can watch all of them. Um, oh, did I say Star Wars? I meant Star yeah, Trek. That's that's okay. Uh, but I, actually, I can watch any Star Wars movie. Also, honestly. Well, right now my son and I are, are actually um, marathoning the entire uh, on-screen Star Wars universe in in in, um, in chronological order. Uh, so we're, we're going for, we're doing all the films and all the TV shows. And the next thing we're going to do is revenge of the Sith. So, uh, I've got a lot of star Wars in my headspace and, and much of it is good. Some of it is not. <laughs> if, if I can chime in about the, the, the Burton film, sure. yeah, uh, Absolutely. I think, uh, I think in terms of on the pluses, obviously there's the, the makeup effects are extraordinary. And um, the the music, the Danny Elfman score is fantastic, I think. I listen to it all the time. I have the, the complete score. Yeah, it's uh, great. And, and, you know, to your point about, you know, I think it helps that that film is just kind of like a little bump in the franchise because yeah. it took, a, you know, after that film, it took a break, break for about 10 years. And then we got, you know, the, the, the Matt Reeves uh, wave that has been extraordinarily well-received. But I think above and beyond that, I think what the Burton film really highlights is why the original <laughs> films worked so well and what Tim Burton really didn't get. And and I always point to that. I'm like, you can tell just in the interviews he gave contemporaneous to that film. You know, I, I had like my Spidey sense tingling because I was like, he was talking about it and talking about the stuff that to me showed he wasn't really on the same wavelength as what, you know, Schaffner and Jacobs and what, what they were trying to do. I and, think you know, you're right about that. Yeah. Well, I think I he, think he so was that putting, that was I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I don't think, I don't think, I, I think that when you look at the projects that were canceled in the, in, in the lead up to his doing the film, I don't think he, I don't think that they even wanted him to, to, to take the same approach as what came before. And I yeah. think that that was the big mistake they made um, because there were, there were projects that were shelved. Like Peter Jackson wanted to do a sixth movie in the original series with Roddy McDowell. Right. Yeah, and, right. um, and, you know, some of the other ones that were shelved really would not have been that good, but, but some of them sounded intriguing. And I think when they went, when they chose to go with Burton, they were purposely, uh, having him go in a different direction than Schaffner and the others would have wanted. And, and I think that there comes a, a point where 
change no longer is good if it's just being done for change's sake. <laughs> well, I, I, I always felt that Tim Burton that. was more interested in making a Tim Burton film than he was a Planet of the Apes film. I think that's fair. And and yet, uh, one can make the argument that Planet of the Apes is the least Tim Burton-y film that Tim Burton ever made. So it's it's neither this nor that. That's the that's the irony, you know. And and he he gave some interview back in the day, and and this was I've always pointed to this. I'm like he he said something to the effect of I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you know, when I watched the original film, uh, you know, what didn't work for me is that they don't act enough like apes. And I'm like, yeah, Tim, that's the point. That's They're the apes thing. that act like people. That's freaking scary. That's what makes it unnerving is they're on horseback and they're just acting like normal people, you know? And, and that He's takes like, us right to the first movie when you have the yeah. reveal, when they show the apes exactly. on horseback and you see Charlton <laughs> Heston's reaction to it. I mean, that's, he's like, they're not swinging around and, like, throwing poop and stuff. It's like, oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> it's almost like Burton uh, thought that the – well, in Planet of the Apes, obviously, we're supposed to see the apes as the villains, but the big shocker is that we are. And it's like right. he didn't get that. <laughs> he, right. does, he If he was expecting them to be swinging around on vines throwing their poo at each other, that's because he didn't understand what the whole point was which was that the reason that the ape society was the way it was is they had emulated us. They had right. inherited the world from us, and we had screwed it up badly. And uh, and therefore, ultimately, we are the problem. I don't think he got that. I don't think he got that because, the um, by and large, the apes are not likable people in his movie. Um, yeah. yeah. Helena no, Bonham even, Carter's even, even but the Helena rest Bonham of them, Carter is, is kind of just kind of weird yeah she she, Although, she's, she she may be a character who you can kind of respect a little bit but she's also just kind of off the wall like I, she's not somebody who's charismatic in that the movie real problem though is is i i think in that film isn't even the um the ape characters the real problem is the human characters because there's not one among them who is anything but a piece of cardboard and that's, that's unfortunate it's uh and i think that that's another thing that uh, Burton didn't understand about the originals is that, sure, okay, the, let, let's face it, in the first movie, other than Taylor, uh, and, and in the very beginning, Dodge and Landon, the, the humans are all running around in loincloths, you know, making grunt noises. But that, So it's not like the humans were interesting characters in that movie to begin with, but Taylor needed to be something to ground the audience. And let's face it, uh, Marky Mark was not. And, and that's the problem, I think. What are you talking I'll, about? I'll also say that Landon is a three-dimensional character because even though his screen time is not extensive, he is given enough interaction with Taylor back and forth where they're getting on each other yes. that you start to understand his character, especially when Taylor gives the little monologue about, you know, his, about Landon's background. I, yep. I think, you know, you, you really start to understand the two of them. And, and he, I mean, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, I'm paraphrasing Landon's line. He's like, okay, you get me good enough, but what about you? You know, right, he, right. he admits to everything Taylor is saying about him. So I do, I do think his character is given depth uh, and, and a little bit of, you know, he's he, he may not be a totally drawn-out character, but I think we get enough of him that we kind of understand who he is and what he is. And <laughs> I love the fact that, he and Taylor are at each other's throats, 
until Taylor is in the predicament he is. And then, at least for the moment, before he realizes that, that Landon was lobotomized, uh, he is just so thrilled to have him back. Hmm. Well, and, and the, you know, the great thing about Taylor, I've said this in my class while discussing the film, I'm like, he is this magnificent asshole. That, yes. that character, like, I mean, he is insufferable, you know? I mean, that's the beauty of the way the film is structured is his entire arc is built on people suck, people are terrible, and then now, you know, dramaturgical irony, he has to be in this position of defending humanity, right? Uh, Wahlberg, uh, Leo Davidson, well, he gets pulled into all this because he lost his monkey. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. That you just summed it up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, there's there's no drama for the end of this episode where I'm going to say to you guys, "Is it yours?" and you're going to tell me, "Yes, it is," because I think we all know that you're going to tell me, "Yes, it is." See, so, I'm going to say Jaws is Planet of the Apes. That's how. That's yeah, how I'm gonna <laughs> I would agree with you. <laughs> so, so well, you know, I, I've I've mentioned a couple of times that even though I set that up as the paradigm. Uh, Jaws, while again, you know, another movie that's in my top ten of all time, is not my number one of all time. Right. But I could, I, I wasn't going to do. Is it The Godfather? So, <laughs> I, but anyway, I, I risk be, uh, being never invited to this podcast again. But I'm going to be totally honest and tell you, I'm not a fan of Jaws. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I, I know that's that not going to prevent you. That will be that will prevent you from. You know what? I'm going to even take that back. I was going to say that'll prevent you be, from being invited for an episode about Jaws. But first of all, I've already done the episode about Jaws. But second of all, I welcome differing opinions. So I wouldn't even mind doing a revisit of Jaws with having you explain why you don't like it. Oh, I should clarify that. It's not that I don't like it. I just don't like I'm not part of like there are certain movies where you go, oh, that was a fun movie. And then you never give it another thought. Ghostbusters and Jaws are two movies that everybody seems to adore but me, where I go, they were fun, I'm glad I saw them, and they're off my radar now. Uh, I get why people would, would be uh, crazy about them, and I, and, and I certainly don't dislike them. I just, the idea that of, the, of, of Jaws being the, the, the gold standard, though, is, is I'm, not in that, I'm not in that headspace, that's all. That's okay. <laughs> I have no but problem I fully with that. respect that I'm the only person in the world who doesn't see it that who doesn't see it that way. So I, it, it's me. It, it's entirely on me. Well, I, again, I have no problem with that concept. <laughs> uh, in in my own personal opinion, there are, there are certain movies out there that I just consider to be perfect movies. In that there is no area where they fail uh, when I view them, and I consider Jaws to be one of those movies. And there's some movies that I would not put quite so high on the list and I'm not I'm not going to struggle to come up with one off the top of my head now but I there are certain movies that I do think are perfect in that they accomplish everything they're trying to accomplish but they're just not great movies anyway I could give you two movies where I can't think of a single negative thing to say about the first is time after time and the other is the princess bride I cannot oh, I mean are, are there negatives there must be because there's nothing that's perfect but I love everything about both of those. So when you say, is it Jaws, I might be thinking, is it time after time? <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I respect that. Not a problem at yeah. all. 
But uh, what I'm going to ask you to do, again, since I don't think there's a drama, any drama on where you'd rank this particular movie, is I'm going to ask each of you to tell me why you think this is as great a movie as you think. You mean the first one, specifically? The first one, yeah. We're specifically talking 1968 Planet of the Apes. Because as time goes by, if I can wrangle you guys in again, we might do an episode on Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Conquest, or Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, And I've already done a, uh, a, a commentary on Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which I found to be a lot of fun to do. Uh, they on the Two True Freaks Network, they did a Planet of the Apes month, and they did commentaries on the first four movies, but they were inclined not to do battle because they didn't love it as much as some of us do. Uh, mm-hmm. And myself and Andy Leyland did a commentary on that one. So, be that as it may, we may I may you know if I like like I said if I can find the time with you guys to do it where we're all available. Uh, we, we may come back and revisit those. So I'd like to now try and focus a little bit more on the 1968 one and what makes that the great movie it is. Nice. You want to take it first, Zeki? Uh, sure, I'm happy to. Uh, you know, I I came into Planet of the Apes in kind of a sideways fashion, and I've told the story before, but uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I was living in Saudi Arabia, and they used to show on TV over there uh, a Fox kind of EPK series called That's Hollywood. And it was hosted by, or it was narrated by Tom Bosley. And it would show the making of and behind the scenes of various film genres in the Fox library. And so uh, they had an episode about science fiction, and that was the first time I saw anything about Planet of the Apes. And I was absolutely fascinated by it because I was I was drawn in and yet repulsed. I found it scary and cool at the same time. And, you know, that was where it kind of like the, the, the initial match got lit, you know, and then um, I read a little bit about it. There were these Crestwood horror books and there was a King Kong book that had a little thing about how like, oh, Planet of the Apes tried to capture some of the appeal of King Kong. I was like, oh, it's so interesting. What is this? What's this all about? And then in Saudi Arabia, they showed Return to the Planet of the Apes, the animated TV series. And. I was just, I mean, it was like, I was eight maybe at the time, and it was like the exact right age to just be pulled into this world. And the film, the original film, was virtually impossible to find over there. No rental stores had it. And a family friend somehow managed to get me a copy of it and, and like a bootleg on VHS. And it was like, it was like Marcellus Wallace's briefcase, you know, like they handed it to me and it's like, oh, you know, and I was probably eight or nine when I saw it, you know, and I kept watching it. I just kept watching it. And, and I, I was, again, that, that mix of horror and fascination is what to me defines what makes this franchise so appealing. And the fact that I was eight or nine and I was like pulled in by the, by sort of the story and the adventure, but really like I was chewing over the, the social commentary aspect, you know, and the fact that here we are 30 plus years since I first saw it. And I still, that's, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about it. I'm, I'm using uh, the, the film as, as a metaphor in classes. I screen it, you know, it's, it's just, it's defined so much of not only my life as just like a film buff, but as a person who writes about film, as a person who teaches film, it, it all started 
with Planet of the Apes. Like, that's not an exaggeration. But it, it sounds to me, and I'm going to just play devil's advocate here because I'm not sure this is true, but from the way you just described it, it sounds like I can make an argument that your love is more of the franchise and not necessarily of this particular film. That I think, I think if that's actually a really good question, I think one thing I've always said is that the measure of how much longevity a franchise can uh, enjoy, even through, you know, maybe not as good or mediocre follow-ups is on how good the first film is. Right. And so to me, you know, I, I watch the animated show now and I'm like, well, that's kind of cheesy. It's kind of goofy, whatever. You know, you, you have to view it through a specific prism. Right. But the original Planet of the Apes is one of those things where everything about it works. There's there's not there's not a hair out of place. Uh, no pun intended. You know, it it's the the genius of that film is that the one thing you could consider, you know, a plot hole, which is the fact that the, the apes speak English, right? And there's no in, there's no in story reason for Taylor not to be like, Hey, wait, hold on. I'm on earth. I think, right. You know, you don't, you, you look, you look, you know what? Right? I've never even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right. Cause like, it's to right me, every from... science fiction movie where they go to another planet, I don't, it doesn't bother me that they speak English. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, nowadays, especially, right, you have to have some like, Oh, our subcutaneous transponder is instantaneously translating to do all this stuff. And, 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 you know, that's just one of those things. And, and Heston even talked about, like, he was, he was like, well, we can't have them, like, we can't have a whole translation scene or whatever. It's just, we just, it's like, uh, you know, it's a movie. You just go with it, right? And then he was right. He was right about that, right? Because, because that's, that's why this film, it works so well, is that that one thing you could point to is maybe like a flaw. But it's not a flaw because that's it's 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 cinematic language. It's a standard film convention, and it, exactly it still right. goes on today. It's the reason that Doctor Who recently had to explain that when you go in the in TARDIS that you you learn languages. <laughs> you know, right. there's a reason right. for this. Right? <laughs> the, 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 there is there's only one other thing I could think of from the original film that falls into the category you're describing, Zachy, in addition to the English, and that is the fact that the apes utterly dismiss the idea that the humans are capable of thought, even though the mm. apes, even though the humans are wearing loincloths they had to have made. <laughs> and and <laughs> well, so that's the... Blame, blame the MPAA for that, right? That's what I was going to say. Just like you have to <laughs> throw your hands up about the English and say, that's film, you have to, you know, the loincloths go, yeah, well, naughty bits jumping around would never have flown <laughs> in 1968, and so that's just how it is. Uh, it, it might have made more money that way, but it, it's. I, th I think a lot of teens uh, would have liked to see more of Linda Harrison, right? I was just going to say, given all, of, I mean, to this <laughs> day, the number of times that, that Nova goes up my feed, and I laugh about how often people are still <laughs> posting pictures of Nova as if they've never seen her before. You know, so, um, to to um, I'm sorry, I, I just realized, Zach, am I cutting off your answer there? I well, I I, I mean, uh, Paul, I I, I kind of went all over the place. I, I hope I answered uh, what you were what, what you were getting to. I think you at least gave me the basis for an answer, and then we're going to keep going, <laughs> and, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot more into details here anyway. So that works. Um, all right, I'll uh, uh, 
lost track of the question here. Oh, well, why specifically? <laughs> why specifically the first? Why the why the first film uh, deserves the praise it gets? Is that the basic gist of what yeah. you were saying? Yes. Okay. Um, why does it rank so highly for you personally? Rank so highly. That's what it was. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got lost listening to what Zachy was saying. I got caught up and realized I forgot what your question was. Um, like Zachy, my my uh, my introduction to the franchise goes back to my childhood and specifically to the late 1970s. In, uh, I grew up in New York and uh, in upstate New York, and there was a uh, was a there were hardly any channels back then. You know, we had a thirteen. Everyone had a thirteen channel set, and four of them were static. So whatever was on, uh, you tended to. You know, it wasn't like now where there were a thousand channels and you would not be aware of it. So things that aired became events. And this local Channel Seven affiliate had this thing called the Four Thirty Movie, and it was a big event for for several reasons. One, there were no VHS players. There were there 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 was no you know there was there was no concept of um, of home viewing unless you had a whole lot of money to buy a big clunky two hundred pound VCR, and uh, and so these movies, um, uh, this movie showcase played a new movie every day at 4.30, and it was heavily edited and filled with commercials, and it didn't matter because it was the only place you were going to get to see it. And uh, the 4.30 movie had theme weeks, so you'd have... uh, I I know there was um, Horror Week, and I believe that that there was... Yeah, there was a a Godzilla Week and Planet of the Apes Week, and oddly enough, Gidget Week. And uh, so they had all these theme weeks, and... Every year I lived for the, for for Planet of the Apes week because but I guess I would have been I don't know nine maybe eight or nine when I for, when I, uh, I'm trying to think of when the, I guess the fourth third movie started probably around like seventy seven maybe so I would have been around nine years old and I was blown away when I saw this film even at age nine I I picked up on things that that were clearly aimed at the more mature adult audience the idea. Um, as I as I mentioned earlier, the idea that that humans are the bad guys in this film, despite you going through the whole film th- seeing Doctor Zaius as the villain, just that one simple shot at the end of the statue completely flips the script, and I, I got that even at age nine. So it 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 blew me away. You know, when Heston falls to his knees and he comes to the same realization as the audience, it. it it's mind blowing. It changes your perspective entirely, and for a brief moment, you say, "Oh my God, Zayas was right." I mean, technically, he's the hero, which is a weird thing to say, but he's protecting an entire planetary population from the, the evils of what happened before, with the previous rulers ran the place. And it's a moment that is just—it's—it's. It's, there's not a lot. There are not a lot of movies that have as successfully pulled off that completely unexpected ending. You know, there, there are some, for example, the crying game comes to mind and uh, fight club and, you know, Sixth sense there, you know, where, where you hit that ending and you, the usual suspects and you go, Whoa, but honestly, planet of the apes to me still stands out as one of the best uh, for that reason alone. But putting that aside, I would, I, I, no matter how many times I see that movie, I find it rewatchable. There's not a bad performance in the movie, and that includes the person whose only line is, eh, you know. So the fact that Linda Harrison makes you care about her character, and 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 there's no there's no dialogue, that's pretty remarkable. 
so the person the person doing the least amount of uh, of performing in the film is still skilled that says a lot for the movie and uh, uh to this day i i I never get tired of seeing it. And uh, the fact is it pulled me in enough that I, um, you know, I, I kind of made a part of my career out of it. <laughs> uh, and, and that was 40 years after the fact, when I was a child, it was an, it was part of, it was a bonding thing. My mom had seen it when it, when it was in the theaters. And so the reason we watched it on four thirty movie was because she wanted to share it with me. And uh, so every every year, uh, I might even been twice a year, whenever it was that Planet of the Apes week aired, the two of us had to watch it together. And over the years, I don't even know how many times I rewatched the movie with her because it became a um, a source of bonding. But it also it cemented us back in the 70s that I would rewatch that movie with her and it would I would still be that kid at age nine who came home from school to watch the 430 movie, even though I had a kid older than that person was at that point. Um, so a large part of it is nostalgia. A large part of it is it's just a freaking amazing movie. Now, uh, did either of you ever read the original source material? Uh, I've, I've read it all. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've read the, the Pierre Bull's novel several times. I've read uh, multiple versions of the screenplay. I read the read- novel when I was in grade school. So it's um, it's not really fresh in my mind at this point. How about you, Zachy? Did you ever read it? Yeah, well, I've read it multiple times. I I read it for the first time before I saw uh, the film. So I had seen the animated show, uh, but not the first film. And in between then, I I got a hold of a book, and it was this beat up old. It wasn't even it wasn't a movie tie in. Well, no, that's not true. It was, but it it said Monkey Planet, and it had a picture of General. Uh, General Urko, actually, not even General Ursus, and it's uh, the book that inspired the movie Planet of the Apes. Uh, and and that was difference. Yeah, it's not the you know the traditional movie tie-in version with Chuck Astor and all them people on it. It was not that one. Did they um, ever look one up that the was a traditional tie-in? I'm sorry, what was that? Did they ever have a book out that was a traditional tie-in? Did they have you, like, like, a, like a novelization? Yeah, there's no yeah. novelization of that. They yeah. they. There's Pierre Bull's novel, and then there are novelizations um, of, of all the other sequels, yeah. and then novelizations of both TV shows. But but uh, but no, none of the original. Yeah, a funny a little aside for you, Jim Beard and I, after after we did uh, um, Tales from the Forbidden Zone, we actually pitched a novelization of the first movie, but Titan didn't go for it. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> See, that's something I would pro- – well, as long as it expanded on the movie, I think I'd be interested in reading it. If it's well, what, just... what we had in mind was to uh, was to take basically all the different versions and try to come up with some way of um, paying homage to them. Um, so it would have been an expanded version and all the different things that – all the, the various tie-ins that have had – Family members for 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 Taylor and 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 uh, and and Landon's backstory. We would have incorporated all of this into the book, but they didn't feel that that. The, and, and you know what? I'm sure they're absolutely right that it's not the same world it was we grew up in. Novelizations don't sell that as well as they used to. So, right. I guess they kind of figured, we're, why are we putting out a novelization for a movie that came out in 1968? And we kind of went, well, I don't know. Is it still pretty much loved? Or it, yeah, he said. Because it, uh, yeah, we found out that uh, in publishing, because it's cool, is really not a good enough of a sales pitch. So it's. Uh, 
that's uh, I'm sure I'm sure that's true. But because it, it's cool is a good enough reason to buy. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think dollars and cents usually should be what's making that decision. But uh, getting back yeah. to the movie itself, I guess the first thing to kind of take a look at is the fact that, you know, Rod Serling, effectively Rod Serling, I guess, and Michael Wilson uh, kind of came up with their own script based on, you know, lo- very, very loosely based on Bull's novel. You know, they really didn't have, you know, they, they went their own route with it. Uh, but yeah, I think, I, I, I think, but I think that's the first step towards this movie being what it is, is they had to come up with a script, a way of presenting these characters, uh, that was going to be accessible to the viewer. And well, I think that's easier said than done. Well, the, in, in Bull's novel, um, as, as you guys both know, the, it's, it's not simple Adobe huts and, 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 and people on horseback. It's a 20th century type of civilization, a regular city. And, uh, in fact, this, in a, in a very weird sense, the, uh, the cartoon is actually closer to the source material than the movie in that regard. Yes, the cartoon has planes and... Exactly. That, that's the kind of civilization that exists. The other thing is that in the novel, it really is a, another planet. It's, it, 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 there's no reveal about Earth. That's something that was added for the film. And um, but it's a very different film. There's no astronaut. He, the, 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 um, the lead character is, uh, is a French journalist. Um, and I don't speak French, so I'm going to botch this. But it's Ulysses Moreau. But I, I could be mis Ulysses Moreau. I could be I could be uh, mispronouncing that if it's my apologies to anyone who speaks French. Um, I don't, but, uh, I don't think I have a really big French speaking audience. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so he finds himself uh, in this on this other world, and and uh, the, the the apes treat him differently than they than they do with Taylor. In that they as soon as they realize he can talk, they turn him into a celebrity, and and then things start going south. And what I find fascinating is that that's the premise of Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. So you have the cartoon series and Escape basically have their roots in Bull's novel, in in some ways more than the actual movie based on Bull's novel. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, that is kind of ironic. Yeah, you know, Bull actually wrote a, a sequel. Uh, called Planet of the Men, and it was supposed to be. Uh, he wrote it as a, he was invited to 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 write it as a sequel to the movie, and it didn't sell. But the script is online, and it and it's it's an interesting read. I actually wouldn't mind seeing it um, play out, but I, uh, I Beneath is a better film, so I'm glad I'm glad they went the route they did. But I I find it fascinating to see what the actual creator of the franchise before it was a franchise would have done. So I recommend hunting it out if anyone hasn't read Planet of the Men. It's on a website called Hunter's Planet of the Apes web archive, and it's, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, I'm going to have to seek that out because I've never read that. Um, so the, the movie itself, and maybe one of you can actually give me an answer to this because I don't know and I probably should. How mm-hmm. long is it? How much time do we view this movie and get to know these characters before we finally see the apes on horseback, it's it's close to a half an hour. Half an hour, yeah, yeah. twenty thirty minutes, yeah. 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 And it, it's long I, enough that it's shocking when it happens. 
But yeah. I, and I think and, it's a testament to the quality of the movie, which is going to go to the direction, it's going to go to the acting, and it's going to go to the script writing, that in the innumerable times that I've seen this movie, I don't want to fast forward to that moment. Right. I'm happy to watch them crash land in the water and figure out a way to survive and move on and then finally confront the apes and the hmm. interaction between them while that's all going on. Yeah, you know, it, I think what Schaffner did so masterfully is he, like, in in his staging and technical approach, he didn't treat this uh, like a sci-fi film. You know, it has this kind of National Geographic documentary style uh, for that first chunk, you know, uh, when, when we come out of the credits. And it's, you know, you have this, the 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 merging of, of Jerry Goldsmith's music, which is so sort of atonal and unnatural and unnerving, right? As mm -hmm. not only as, not only as the astronauts escape from the, their ship, I think when they escape from the ship and as the, that music crescendos, it has this, this uh, tone of like uh, isolation or something, you know, like the, the, they're stuck. There's, you know, Taylor says, we're here to stay. You really, you don't need him to say that because you have that feeling before uh, masterfully executed. And then that's, you know, the, the entire first 25 minutes or so is just an investment in acts two and three. It's all about situating you emotionally in a place where you, as the audience member are asking yourself, what would I do? Where would I go? And I think that's so important and it pays off in the moment when, when when Haston is running through the town and everywhere he goes, there's apes. I mean, if the the, the movie works its mojo on you and you're that's what you're asking yourself. Where what am I gonna? What would I do here? You know, it's it's funny because we've had that conversation with the uh, the Walking Dead. You know, what yeah. would you do in that situation? And my answer is, I would just try and find the most comfortable way to commit suicide because I wouldn't want to <laughs> live in that world. Yeah. And I'm not sure my answer would be different if I was George Taylor. Right. You know, I, I was thinking uh, while you were while you were just while you were describing the feel of the early part of the film, Zachy, I think that the scene in which uh, in which Landon plants the flag and Taylor laughs at him, kind of some <laughs> basically, I, I think it it makes such a statement about the fact that the finality of their situation and how how amusing it is to him, but in a very dark way that Landon doesn't see it. But yeah. the audience does. Like the, the, when, when he laughs, it's not with humor so much as irony, and the audience gets it. They're not I, going I think to... it's, it's, it's irony, and it's also uh, putting Landon down. Because Landon, Landon clearly hasn't given up hope yet. Yeah. But Taylor has. Yeah. So, you so know, it's, it's, Taylor it's, like, it's almost him saying, you fool. Taylor's quite the misanthrope. Landon's quite naive, and neither one of them has a very healthy attitude. Hmm. Yeah. And so you end up with a the the, the naive guy ends up uh, finding out on the wrong end of a surgeon's scalpel just how wrong he is about uh, uh, about mankind ever staking a claim on this world, and the misanthrope ends up being the guy who destroys the planet. <laughs> Well, so he also is is the one who you know he he sees the irony himself when he's uh, 
sitting there with Nova and he's talking about the fact who who would believe that I would need you. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the the when you talk about Landon and you know the whole uh you know the the sort of the the the, the O Henry twist that his character ha- endures, you know. Uh, I think it's very interesting that uh, having watched the film with my kids, you know, several times when when they were younger, you know, my my oldest, when he was maybe like six or seven, uh, he had already seen the movie a few times. But when we got to that point, uh, he my uh, uh, my my son was like, can you can you skip past this part? Uh, I don't like this part. And, and, you know, I mean, he wasn't old enough to know what like he, he doesn't know what a lobotomy is. You know what I mean? He just but saw was, the scar and it freaked him out. It was it was unnerving, right? And and to and it, I was like, I totally got it because I remember having that exact reaction, right? And and you know, to me, I may have, I think I I said this uh, on my podcast talking about that moment. Uh, there's something, you know, it's it's it gets to this the appeal of the zombie genre or even like the Borg on Star Trek, right? It's the reason they're terrifying. It's this idea of you are you, but you're no longer you. Yeah, and I never thought so it as a zombie. That's an interesting perspective. You're right. That's basically what they do to him. Yeah. yeah, I would say the two moments, and I, I had a very similar feeling to you and your son with the Landon thing, but the other scene that I found equally unnerving as a child was when they show Stuart's body mummified. Oh, Stuart. Sure. A large part of the effect of that scene is because of the sound of the air escaping. It sounds like Stuart is screeching (laughs) at the top of her lungs. Yeah. Well, I always thought that was Goldsmith's score. I didn't think it was air escaping. See, that's how, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely the score, but I always, what I perceive that sound as is, uh, the hatch is about to blow, and Eris is escaping. Um, you, you, you may be right. Your interpretation may be 100% on the money. But I yeah, always thought it was they, it was kind of like that psycho music crescendo, and then the, per, the, the door burst and the water started coming in. Maybe it's effective because it's ambiguous. But see, that's how I've always perceived it as, you know, like the, it, it works as – Actually, Psycho is a very good, a very good analogy there. It works because you see that, and and that sound is what's probably going through the head of the heads of the three men as they look at Stewart. Uh, and then, and then moments later, the the uh, the door bursts. And um, yeah, you know, you, you you mentioned about like what would you do in this scenario? <laughs> uh, even in that moment, long before the apes come in, I don't even know what I would do. You're in the middle of a lagoon that's and you're in a ship that's about to go down, and you think that you're on another planet somewhere. The only chance for the survival of the species, although <laughs> I was going to say it has just died, or the truth is that apparently the people at ANSA have no idea how biology works because uh, they thought that <laughs> and one woman could keep a species going. But all right. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe you needed to reverse that equation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I always, I always thought that was just kind of a weird. Even, even as a kid, I thought, well, how are they perpetuating the species this way? I mean, there's only so many kids she's going to knock out at once every nine months, right? So, this was really not a very smart move from a colonizing standpoint. So, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I've kind of always in my head canon. I've always gotten by that thinking that they didn't truly believe they were going to go somewhere where man was extinct 
that they were going to find people. Which isn't necessarily borne out by the show, by the movie, but that's just kind of how I've, in my mind, I've gone with that. I think I always perceived that line more of, he's just a misogynistic dick. <laughs> that's, that's, that may be more on the mind. Right, like, he, he's, that's the way he saw her, maybe, more than Ansa did. You know, I, I, I that's kind of how I've always seen it, you know, that, uh, especially the way he describes her, you know, uh, Eve to our Adam, and, you know, like he, he makes it clear he was looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think part of that might have been him projecting his thoughts about uh, Stewart in uh, on top of what Ansa actually was sending them out there to do. <laughs> yeah. Plus, yeah. it's 1968. You know, it was a very different time. Have you ever seen the, the Mad Men episode where uh, <laughs> where they go to see Planet of the Apes? Yes. Oh no, I haven't. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is a great moment where the main character takes his son to go see Planet of the Apes and. I absolutely adored that moment because uh, that was my reaction the first time I saw it and sitting there with, with my mom watching it. And I, and I thought, wow, I think whoever wrote this episode had that experience because it rings mm. really true. Mm. Well, let's, I mean, it's, it's, it, it definitely rings true for me because as I said, I saw it because my dad took me to see it. So you know, that's I, I can see myself in in that in those in those seats right there when, when they're watching the movie. Uh, you know, Trump there's there's one to... aspect of the movies that movie like we haven't really touched on sure. that I matters a lot, especially given what the the main question you were asking was about why this film stands out. I think a lot of it you know, we we've touched on the music and the direction and the writing, but the truth is, I think the biggest piece of gold in this is the acting. Because without Heston, without McDowell, you know, without the without the, this whole perfect lineup of actors, I don't know that would have, it would have been as effective. There, there's this amazing chemistry be, between Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, and there's this and and there's this amazing chemistry between uh, between the characters, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, both adversarial and friendship wise. It just it's 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 cinematic gold, and it, and I. I the personalities of the actors come through so well, despite the very thick John Chambers makeup. And that's a testament to the makeup, but it's also a testament to the fact that these actors were just so dynamic in these roles. I recently started showing the movies to a friend of mine who had never seen them, which always amazed me. And one of the things Tim noted, we're almost done watching the, 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 um, the TV, the TV show from 74. And one of the things that, uh, my friend Tim has commented on is he finds it fascinating how just by crinkling up his face, Roddy McDowell looks like a chimpanzee. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, it goes beyond that because the way he did that, the way he shuffled his feet and the way he crinkled up his face kind of became the way everybody does it. <laughs> it became the standard. How do you do a chimpanzee? Oh, you, you know, you, you, you do a Samantha from Bewitched and, and, and you're a chimpanzee. And, um, now, and, and, I, and I wonder sometimes, like, what level of fame, because to me, Roddy McDowell is Cornelius and Caesar, and yeah. to a lesser extent, uh, what's his name from Fright Night? Uh, but, but before this, I mean, he was in My Friend Flickr and yeah. some TV series, but I don't really know what level of fame he was, and recognition he had. No, he was a big name. He was a, from a very young age, he was a big name. 
I, I, I might even say that that he might have become a bigger name. I hate to say this because I love Planet of the Apes, but he, I think he got. I and, and Zach, you're you're a film historian, so correct me if you disagree. But I think once he became tied to Planet of the Apes, he was less likely to get larger roles than he was before it. But I think I, he, but he he had some big roles back then, and I think that uh, I think that he became the ape guy. Uh, I think that's very true. I think uh, you know, unfortunately, he left us. Uh, uh, you know too soon and you know there was potential like he 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 would he would have come into that point uh in you know in the last 20 years where the all the whole generation of people that had grown up with the apes films would have been putting him in roles that really took advantage of his talent uh he never got that opportunity unfortunately but i one thing i always appreciated is he never once expressed uh, regret for his affiliation with those films. No, he, he seemed to embrace it. I mean, he was willing to do the TV series. Uh, they did that terrific documentary that he narrated or hosted yeah. uh, behind right. the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, which uh, was like one of the last things he ever did. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, I really I, I always enjoy when you know, I, I think I've said this many times. To me, it's enjoy—it's enjoyable to see a performer who seems to enjoy what they're doing. Uh, when, right. when it seems—you know—when it seems like it's not a job to them, and that's the impression I've always gotten with Roddy McDowell and the Planet of the Apes franchise—that this wasn't a job to him. That this almost became something that he just loved doing. I and, think that's very true. Otherwise, why else would he keep putting the makeup on, right? Yeah, because yeah. I think I do think there would have been other opportunities for him, and I think he, the fact that you know you you mentioned that he kind of became typecast to an extent, I th I think that's almost his own doing, uh, that he just enjoyed he this so much it. he kept revisiting it. Yeah, yeah. And I you know I, I think of you know when I think of people like that I think of you know in in modern day I think of Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine I think of uh, Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man these are guys who seem to have enjoyed what these roles have brought to them so much that they don't mind in the slightest coming back to it. They don't turn their back on it. And it's not to minimalize others who say, I want to move on before I become too typecast, like possibly Chris Evans. Uh, but to me, when, when you know that they come back because they have this innate love of doing it, uh, it, it, it just becomes more enjoyable to me knowing that. In fairness, I, I think it, it, uh, there's probably the one difference here is that I very much doubt that the Planet of the Apes films were paying the actors what McDowell and Jackman make. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I agree with that. So the typecasting might have hurt him a little more than it will those two. Well, and, I, I, and I you know, one, you. One, thing, uh, one thing worth pointing out is uh, Chuck Heston, you know, in his, uh, in his memoir in, in the arena, he talked about how... Uh, you know, Planet of the Apes was really like the first franchise. And, you know, he looked at, you know, at the time he wrote it, I think it was the mid 90s. And he he looked at, you know, actors like, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and these guys who would just dine out on their franchise. And he's like, you know, I I could have done that like in the 70s if I wanted to, you know, and almost like a little bit of regret, like, yeah, maybe, maybe that might not have been such a bad idea, you know, <laughs> like just just making eight movies. Well, to me, he did it a little differently because he did this yeah. and he did Soylent Green and he did the Omega Man. Excuse me. Right. And so, so he almost, instead of doing a franchise, he did the genre. Yeah. Right. He became the right. post-apocalyptic guy. <laughs> right. 
So, so I, I don't think, you know, although, you know, it, it's, you know, pretty common knowledge that he would only do Beneath the Planet of the Apes if his part was minimalized and if he died. Uh, but just the same, you know, he, he, I don't think he... I don't think he ever regretted being in this. And in fact, you know, he did do the cameo in the Burton one. So, uh, I, although I kind of felt that that fell flat a little bit, but we'll. Well, it was a very interesting. You know, that cameo, that cameo to me, and really actually Heston's presence in Beneath the Planet of the Apes also really to me says something about his character, right? Because he did both. Beneath and uh, uh, Apes 01 as a favor to Dick Zanuck. And he's like, you know, we couldn't have gotten the first one made if it wasn't for Dick. So, you know what? That's fine. I'll, I'll do it for you. And I'm like, you know, uh, you know, tw- uh, uh, 30 plus years later, Zanuck comes to me. He's like, hey, we just want to do this little thing for you. Oh, sure. For you, no problem. Like, hmm. you know, that's like there, there was a guy. You know what I mean? Like for I, I vehemently disagreed with his political uh, stances late in life, but I always respected his character when it came to just what it meant to be a decent person, you know? Well, it's, it's, I, and I, I respect people who can differentiate between yeah. somebody's political and somebody's person. Because uh, there's, there's plenty of people I disagree with on a political level, but who I have great and tremendous respect for. Uh, and I like to think that that can be mutual from people. So yeah. uh, I, I kind of like when people can see beyond just, you know, superficial politics. I know when somebody gets into some, you know, real deep issues, then that changes things sometimes. But at least superficially, I don't think, you know, yeah, be, oh, well, some, so-and-so's on the other side of the aisle, so I have to hate him. Oops, still there? All okay there, Zachy? Sorry, my my daughter decided to chime in on the conversation too. Well, I just know from the pictures you've posted of her, she's adorable, so she's yes, welcome to. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> she's a little little uh, movie nerd in training. That's from the pictures you've posted, I would say all your children are. <laughs> these, these kids, it's it's we we just we watched. Uh, I I haven't watched the Oscars in a couple of years, and I put it on yesterday, and they were all watching, and so we made it like a little thing where. Before each, like, I would pause right before. They'd be like, and the Oscar goes to, and then I'd pause it, and I'd be like, all right, guys, lock in your picks. Parasite. That's fun. You make it a family event. That's yeah, Everything so, you can I do think, to make something a family event is a positive thing. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> I know that my, uh, my sisters and my cousins and my stepmother all get together every year for Oscar night, and they, they take bets on who... Uh, which pictures are going to win, but um, I've never gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, uh, just talking about a little bit more about the casting here, and uh, I think we can get back to some main characters in a moment, but the one that's thing that surprised me is for years, for years, I thought Lucius was played by John Fiedler. Hmm. And, and he's what? not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I listen to his voice, and I say, "But that's Piglet." <laughs> oh, how funny! Yeah, okay, I can. You know, now that you say that, I can kind of see how you made that connection. That's really funny. Yeah, Lou Wagner. At times, he's got that that uh, intonation, the Piglet Piglet esque. 
Too funny. Now I'm never going to be able to see Lucius the same way. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if, if every time oh, you – because I know order. you'll be watching this movie again. So if every time you watch it you think of me because I said that, I'm going to be glad I did. Well, I'm just glad you didn't think he was Eeyore because that might destroy the film for me. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know what's kind of crazy is, is Lou Wagner – as far as I know, is like the last main. Other, well, other than Linda Harrison, he's the last main uh, cast member who's still around. Yes, that's, that's actually true. the lead sentence on his Wikipedia page. Oh, is it really? That he and Linda Linda Harrison are the only two surviving members now. That's kind of like it's kind of crazy to think about that because, like, when you look at uh, beneath or sorry, behind the Planet Apes, the documentary you were alluding to, pretty much everyone was interviewed there with the exception of like Morris Evans and, you know, Franklin Schaff and a couple of people, but like one by one, pretty much everybody interviewed in that documentary has passed on. It's, it's, you know, it's just a, an unfortunate marker of time, you know, it is, but I guess it's, it's a testament to the fact that they made that documentary just in time. Yeah. Just in time. Yeah. So true. Because if they had waited five more years, they would not have been able to make the documentary that they made. Or, or I mean, like five more months, because Roddy was gone within within months of that documentary coming out. Yeah. Which is why I've always regretted that Jackson was not allowed to make the sixth movie, because that window yeah, closed when McDowell died. Yeah. Because, you know, the idea was that he was going to be coming back in, in the movie, and he was all for it. And... Uh, that's the one. The one. Ver, there, there are several different versions of uh, of what would have become the Burton film. There are several different versions of the script out there, different projects, and the one that's never, to my knowledge, been released is Jackson's. And I've always wanted to read it because I know that he um, apparently it would have taken place sometime after battle, and uh, McDowell would have played what what I keep seeing referred to as a Leonardo da Vinci ape. And I'm intrigued just by that description. I'm wondering what the hell that means. Uh, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, a, a, him playing an eccentric in, uh, innovator, an inventor. You know, I'm wondering, I think, first of all, that would have been very cool. But second, I'm wondering, you know, what the idea was. But for whatever reason, the studio decided um, that nobody really cared about the original movies. For the, the story Jackson tells is that... Uh, is that that when it looked like it was going to happen, and then there was a change up in the leadership, and the new guy came in and said, "Who's Roddy McDowell?" Is that is that oh, the Steve. one that was it was going to take place after the first movie and disregard the four sequels? No, no, this was going to be a sixth movie in the series. It was going to take place years after Battle. Okay, because I know there was one that they were talking about doing that with, where they were going to that, just disregard that was... the four. Which that is, was, I think that was when Cameron was involved, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yes. that, that's, that screams to me these recent Terminated sequels that we've yeah. gotten, uh, which I, I, yeah. I'm not so crazy about that. And I do have to say that I thought Beneath the or Battle for the Planet of the Apes did kind of wrap it up in a nice bow with the you know the closing scene in that movie. Uh, yeah. So it, it didn't scream out for a sixth movie. But on the other hand, every single movie they made – was with the thought process of this is the last one we're doing. Right. So, you know, every time they, you know, they blew up the world for Christ's sake. And they said, well, we need to do a sequel. <laughs> see, see, I'm, I'm biased on this question because um, I actually happen to love battle. <laughs> and, I, I'm uh, a fan of it. Also. I, I, I'm a fan I, of all of them. 
Yeah, I pre- I'm the outlier on a lot of uh, movies. <laughs> um, but the the story that I wrote for Tales from the Forbidden Zone was basically a part six to the to the movies. It was it was 20 years after battle and kind of wrapping up all the remaining plot threads. So I, I would have really dug it if 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 Jackson had been allowed to do that because I I think there was more story to tell. He and never got my, my thought I is did, so. <laughs> my my thought isn't that you couldn't do a, a successful sequel to Battle. My thought was that they did come to a conclusion with it and that it would take a skilled writer, and perhaps you were that person, my friend, uh, to to write a sixth one that would be effective. I don't know if you've read Tales, but basically what I, my story... I have not. I have to uh, say... But my, my story takes place um, 20 years after Battle uh, and involves the, the origins of the mutants and... Um, Caesar's regrets at mistakes that he made in the early days of Ape City, and um, and it, it kind of a, the idea of what happens when a king gets old and looks back at his his kingdom and wonders, do I have is there anything I should have done that I never did, and can I get it done while there's still time in my life? I think and I'm going to this and read it. <laughs> and uh, it's a terrific and, anthology. It's terrific. Oh, book. thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so I'm biased in that, you know, like as soon as we got the, the green light to do this book, I immediately said, I'm doing, um, I'm, I'm doing a story set after battle. And part of that I think was driven by the fact that I always wished that Jackson had done it, <laughs> especially now that, you know, I'm, I'm not a major fan of, of Jackson's King Kong, but I am a fan of his movies in general. And, uh, and I, and, and I, I think he could have done it, done great justice to the movies. He, he's a very outspoken fan of those old movies, and I, I would have loved to see what he could have done with it. And, 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 I, and I know we're, we're you know, off on a tangent here, but I, I think Jackson is a terrific visual filmmaker, and his stories I usually enjoy, but I do think he needs to be just reeled in a little bit. I think he needs some somebody who that, just yeah. says, if you want to make this movie that's three hours long, make it, and then let's get a skilled editor to cut you down to two and a half hours, and I think we're going to have one of the best <laughs> movies ever. Are you yeah, I mean, that a 14-hour version of The Hobbit is just a tad too long? <laughs> well, that's one of, one of my thoughts, yes. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I enjoy his movies very much, but I think, you know, he's another guy who, once he had the gravitas to do what he wanted, needed somebody there who was not going to be a yes man. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at, uh, what was the, the movie he made, Frighteners, before he had that, uh, yeah. that, that car yeah. punch? And I, and I, I see so movie. many things in that that I enjoy. I, I haven't spent many years. I should rewatch that. Oh, that's I think a great it's, play. It's a it's an underrated movie, and I think it's a forgotten it really movie. I liked it. Yeah, kind of uh, Michael J. Fox's last like star vehicle, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he went back to TV. And before his. Yeah, I was just his wondering. Unfortunate illness took more hold. More hold. I was that's wondering right. if uh, had the had the Parkinson's started to kick in yet at that point. Maybe well, I mean, he was he, suffering he, from it at he, the time, but I don't think it yeah, was he, well, he, as visual. He, he got the diagnosis uh, while filming Doc Hollywood, which was like 90. And the is, is what, about like, 95? A couple of years later? 96. It's like 96. Oh, so that late. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that's... 
Well, he did. It was fun, regardless. So it yeah, was, and uh, and maybe one day we'll cover that one. Uh, <laughs> I could have you guys back every week for a while. Um, That'd be awesome. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes you're too accommodating, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> keep bothering you, pal. Um, you know, sometimes you would de- when you read about these movies a little bit, you wonder what might have been. And you know, the, there's the famous screenplay with uh, or. Uh, not screenplay, excuse me, uh, uh, screen test with Edward G. Robinson, where it's really more of a makeup screen test than anything else. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> uh, but just, you know, picturing him as Dr. Zayas uh, as opposed to Maurice Evans. Uh, it's one of these things where I think Maurice Evans hit, hit every note correctly. Right. But I don't doubt that Edward G. Robinson could have done the same. Well, Edward G. Robinson was a, was a fantastic actor, but the problem that we're all going to have in this discussion is simply that we've seen Evans in the role. Well, <laughs> and, and that's that's yeah. why I can't fault Evans' yeah. performance in the slightest. And right. I can't, I can't in good faith sit end, here yeah. and say that Robinson would have been better. I can't, because I thought Maurice Evans was, was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the question is, could Robinson have done it as well? And I think he could have. So then the question starts to become, how, how would he have interpreted it differently? What would have been different about the portrayal? And that's where I think, you know, the speculation is difficult. Well, I think one thing is that I think Zayas might have come off a little harsher just by the nature of the voice. Um, hmm. <laughs> Evans obviously is portraying a guy who's dogmatic and a danger to, to Taylor but the way he talks is not entirely unkind to everybody. And, uh, and Robinson, I, I don't know, I think, I think his voice might have, it's a funny word to use with an ape, especially an ape who's the fil- film's villain, but it might have dehumanized him a little bit. Um, and uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it might, it might have made him a very effective villain, but he might have come off as a little too villainous. I wonder because, you know, the only thing contemporary to this that I can think of is his role in Soylent Green with Charlton Heston. And he was a very likable character in that. That's actually true. You're right. Um, All right. Disregard everything I just said. Maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe. But, but, you know, he was playing it, it, a different part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think as Dr. Zayas, he would have been more harsh than Maurice Evans was. I don't know that that would have been bad. I think it could have had its own effectiveness, though, because I do think he would have been harsher, which would have made him more villainous in his own way, which would make the turnaround when you realized he really wasn't so much a villain as he was a protector of his species. Yeah. Uh, so it would have made that turnaround even more dramatic in its own way. And and if I can add a thought, I mean, the, the iteration that uh, – Edward G. Robinson's was attached to, certainly as evidenced by the makeup test, was much uh, closer to the, the the novel. Absolutely. In which in which Zayas is a much more sinister character than he is in the movie. I've always found the makeup test amusing because the the um, the pictures remind me of Odo from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, certainly. Every, uh, every time Dolan, I see right? pictures of Cornelius in particular, I just sort of chuckle and I say, you know, the, I, I feel like I'm watching Rene Auberginois. It's, 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 yeah, I, I, 
I look at that and I wonder what was going through James Brolin's mind as he's like getting made up to look like this this weird proto monkey, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you see what I mean with the Odo thing? Like, there's a certain uh, oh, changeling totally. influence to that. <laughs> <laughs> and I say influence, even though it predates the changeling by decades. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, well Deep Space Nine was so it fractured the space time continuum. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Reached backwards in time. Yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's, I played Gary Seven. It's, so that, that's it. That's that was the butterfly effect, Gary Seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, it would. It, I, I, while I can say what I did about Edward G. Robinson, I can't imagine that James Brolin could have carried off the role anywhere near as well as Roddy McDowell did. Right? No way. No. Yeah. I happen to like Brolin, but I don't think he would have been as good in the role. You know, I think, I think Brolin, and I remember, you know, to, to go to that era, I remember him him playing Doctor Kylie on Marcus Welby, M.D. Yep. And he was he was certainly a more physically imposing person than Roddy McDowell, and I think that would have taken away from the characterization that we saw. Uh, you know, Roddy McDowell played it in a way where he was an intellectual, uh, and he wasn't physically imposing. And I, I think, you know, there yeah. was never any point where he was going to be an action star in this. In fact, if anything, he was, he, you know, he was clearly very, very pacifistic in his uh, beliefs uh, to the point where even Taylor was, you know, doing what he felt he needed to do. Cornelius is telling him, no, no, stop. Huh. If you look at the casting of the apes in the first movie, other than Marcus, they're all pretty small. Most of the actors chosen for these roles were not tall people. And it's effective when you consider that chimpanzees are not human sized despite despite these movies. You know, <laughs> uh, even Roddy McDowell was pretty tall for a chimpanzee. So it, it um it's effective. The fact that the fact that that uh, that Zeus and, and, and Zira and and Cornelius and Lucius are all pretty small compared to Hunter. Uh, compared to, I just say Hunter. Where the hell did I get the Taylor? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hunter. I've created a whole new character. Um, but <laughs> quick, get to the typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, in any case, I, I think it's effective. I think it, it, and uh, so I, I think that Brawlin might have undercut that. Um, not not because of any lack of talent, but because he would because Taylor would have been looking eye to eye with Cornelius, and it it, it would have it would have made a very different dynamic. Yeah, I don't see him having played the character as you know the, what, what you were describing earlier with you know the uh, you know the way the way he would uh, do the bewitched thing with his nose and and the way yeah. he kind of like moved his arms and his legs around. I don't see Brolin playing it that way. There was a Brolin certain softness to his performance that Brolin wouldn't have brought to it. Yeah. I definitely think that. I, I, I think Rodney McDowell, more than anyone else in this movie. Well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that back. I'm, before I even say it, I'm going to take it back. Rodney McDowell and Kim Hunter, to me, are the key casting choices in this movie, even more so than Charlton Heston. And Charlton Heston is, you know, clearly the star of the movie, and he's on the screen almost through the whole thing. But I do think the contrast with them and the, for lack of a better word, the humanity you see from them is what truly makes this movie what it is. It, it keeps it from just being an action film. 
Well, there's a reason Cornelius and Zira are the people you're supposed to like, not the star of the movie. Huh. It's an unusual well, film to, in that regard. You know, you're I, supposed I think, to you're supposed to be scared, you know, of the kind of world Taylor's found himself in. But from from the moment you meet him, Taylor's not a likable person. Whereas Zira and Cornelius, you know, you you, you would take them home and make them dinner. You know, <laughs> and, Taylor and, and isn't likable, but I think you're supposed to dissect to somebody's him. brain. You know, so I mean, like, despite the fact that she's dissecting human brains, she, she's the person you want to hug. So there's a, it, it's, and I think a large part of that is because of their performances. It, it, as much as it is the writing, it's the fact that they brought this amazing softness and humanity to the role. They were perfectly chosen, and there's such a chemistry between the two of them. But I think you're but, not supposed to like Taylor. But I do think you're supposed to relate to him. Sure. You're supposed, you're supposed to, in your mind, he's your point of view character, really. Yeah. And I think you're supposed to be sitting there saying, oh, my God, what if I'm this in this situation? And then you get Cornelius and Zira, and it's like you know a life raft out there for you uh, in, in, in a seemingly hopeless situation. And, uh, and you know, if I may, I think while, while Taylor is not necessarily likable, Charlton Heston is, right? So it's that unique alchemy of we're willing to overlook the sort of gaping chasms in in some of his character because he's Charlton Heston, this icon who, you know, and Eric Green, I think, says this in, in the in the documentary very eloquently, right? I mean, he he'd become a symbol of sort of what it meant to be you know, the enlightened man or whatever it is, you know? And so the, this perfect marriage of actor and character allows you to be fully engaged in his struggle while on some level recognizing that, you know, there, he, he's not a particularly pleasant person. I think that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> I also, I, I love the, the way, you know, you're talking about time adding context and reaching backwards. You know, when you have, uh, when when Cornelius and Zira free Taylor at the end, and he's like, "Do you have any guns?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we don't need any. I want one anyway." Click, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> cold dead hands." I get it. You know? <laughs> uh, but I, I, like I said, I think we are supposed to relate to him, and I think in the same situation, we're saying, "Yeah, I'd want a gun." <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you see, that's the beauty of the ending, because throughout the movie, you are supposed to relate to the one speaking human character who made it past the first 20 minutes. Right. So you're supposed to speak. You're supposed to relate to him because he's the only point of view you can have. None none of us wear loincloths and and are mutes. Well, some people are mutes, but most of us are not. None of us are chimpanzees, orangutans and gorillas. So the only person who can be the one we relate to is Taylor. So we go into the film right up until the end, assuming Taylor's perspective is the correct one, because it's the only one we we are truly wired to understand. That's what makes the ending so fascinating, because you get to the end and you you immediately it's like a data dump ends up in your head and you start immediately replaying these these earlier moments. And, you, you know, you know, you might not like what you find and you realize he's not Zayas isn't being a dick. What Zayas is saying is, seriously, you're not going to like what's out there. It, you, you're probably better off not going, you know. Hmm. And uh, it, tr- trust me, what, what I've seen is out there is terrible. And you're, it, it's 
it's not going to make you happy, so don't go. In a way, Zayas hmm. almost spared him from pain. <laughs> and it, it, it totally flips the, the the script here because it 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 uh by by make by but it, it it's effective because Taylor is not the most likable person. It makes it easier to flip the script at the end when you finally get the bigger piece of the puzzle, and you say, "Wow, Taylor is." Taylor is not a bad person. He's just not somebody, you know, he, he's just, he's just, not, he's, he's miserable. He's an unhappy person. And maybe he's indicative of why humanity did what it did to itself. And, and I think had they made him more likable, it might not have been as effective. I think it was actually very well done that they made him as unlikable as he is because it makes the revelation that, that Zayas was not wrong more believable, in my opinion. But I think you could also play what if with Taylor a little bit and say, in the situation where, you know, let, let, let's hypothetically say the apes, uh, they welcome him. They, they don't have a problem with him. And they set him up in a, in a little cabin. Him and, him and Nova can stay together and we're going to take care of you. We're going to feed you and you, you could live out your years comfortably here. Uh, and, and we think that's the best thing because this way you'll never be a threat to us. He's still wandering off and going checking out the Forbidden Zone. He's not just sitting there and saying, "Oh, okay, I'm going to sit here and uh, and and you know fornicate with uh, Nova and and just enjoy myself." <laughs> he, he's still going to find that Statue of Liberty. Sure. I, I don't see any situation where that is avoidable. I think that's inevitable for his character. Well, it would have killed the film also if they if they hadn't. I mean, if if he had accepted that, that would have. Oh yeah. yeah, well no, no, that's that was, that was that is not right a premise. Through. I am not suggesting that as an alternate <laughs> premise for a film. I'm just suggesting it from the perspective of let's explore the character a little bit. I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious what character in the first movie most fascinates you guys. And I'll answer since I'm answering. I'm asking the question. I'm going to explain why I'm asking this. As much as I think that Zira and Cornelius are the heart of the story, and Taylor's the perspective character, Zaius intrigues me. The reason Zaius intrigues me, in order to answer it, I'm going to do a bigger picture story here. Um, there are four characters in the five movies who, well, actually there's five, actually, five, five main, well, technically six if you're going to bring the mutants into this, but each time that you meet another faction in these films, there's a character who stands out who has the same exact goal as Zaius. Those characters would be uh, um, Zaius, obviously, uh, Mendez the 26th, Hasline, uh, Culp, who else? Uh, Ursus, I'm probably missing somebody somewhere. But in, in all those and, cases... Uh, name? Uh, Claude Akins. Uh, oh, yes, of course. Right, right. Uh, Aldo. Aldo. So couldn't think of in, in those six cases, basically, you have these six characters who all have exactly the same motivation, which is fear has pushed them to want to eliminate another species uh, or another culture. But what's interesting about it is at no point, well, with both Zayas and Hasline, they're the villains. But in both cases, you could say, you know, I can't say that if I were in their shoes, I wouldn't necessarily do exactly the same thing because I might. If I thought that killing two people would save an entire future, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a killer. I'm a pacifist. But could I rule that out? I don't know that I could rule that out. And if 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 lobotomizing one guy prevents an entire society from falling apart, could I genuinely say I wouldn't do it? No, I, I genuinely can't say that. At the same time, 
I don't think that I could force people to kill each other <laughs> brutally the way Mendez does. I certainly would not end up like Aldo because Aldo is kind of one, you know, one dimensional. Um, and uh, Culp. Uh, oh, also another one. Actually, I, I can't believe I didn't. I didn't think of this. Is um, is Breck. Culp and Breck and 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 um, Ursus are all and, and, and they're all very single-minded. At no point do you say I I totally agree with Ursus. Ursus is right. <laughs> yes, Culp is absolutely the heart of the story. Like at no point do you have that reaction. But with 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 uh with Hasline and especially with Zaius, there are points where I find myself saying I kind of agree with them. All of that long-winded explanation was was my way of asking which character in the film in the first film, but really in all of them, most fascinates you from a philosophical standpoint? Uh, I'm just going to say Dodge, because he would walk naked into a live volcano, and, you know, uh, I'm fascinated by anyone who would do that, because I think that's kind of messed up. But that's just me. I love that out-of-the-box answer. I would never expect <laughs> someone to say I, I Dodge. Am, I, am some, I am very curious about Dodge, because he's the one you really learn the least about. <laughs> you really do. You, you're told about him because he, he's you know what I mean? He's I would love if he was just out of ear. He'd be like, hey, no, I wouldn't. He speaks the least of, of the initial characters uh, other than Stuart. Uh, he, he and he, he, you know, he dies before you, you know, he doesn't really get involved in the philosophical debates between Landon and Taylor. So I would be really I, I would I would not have minded if they had given him some dialogue there where he kind of presented a counterpoint to both, which we didn't right. get. Right. Uh, but so I'm fascinated by his character as to what you might have done with him. Uh, in in the same way, I I find myself curious about Zaius. I would like to know exactly what he knew and how he found it out. Did he piece together those little puzzle pieces in the cave? Did he ever see the Statue of Liberty there? Did he know exactly what happened? Or did he just know man was here first? Because clearly he knew that. There, but there how much did he Malibu. know? There's a comic from Malibu Comics called Sins of the Father that actually addresses the very question you just asked. That's a good story. It really is. It's it's a it's about uh, Zaius's dad taking him to see the the big secret that all the orangutans hold on to. And and I've I read most of the Boom Studio stuff, but I you know you keep mentioning the ones I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> the Malibu line, I'm a, I'm a fa I'm a fan of it probably more than some people are because I I know it has a lot of detractors, but but I I like a lot of it. And Sins of the Father is absolutely worth reading. I do have a lot of these that I need to sit down and read. Uh, and, I, and, and as always, when we cover these things, I do like to mention, go back in the Back to the Bins uh, archives and find when we did Planet of the Apes Month, because we covered a lot of really good comics in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I, think, I think that I would find Zaius to be the most fascinating to explore. Uh, but I also... I wouldn't mind seeing so much of uh, Zira's background, too, because I think she's a lot more complex than what we get from her. She's presented in a very simple, very humanitarian-type role, uh, for lack of a better word than humanitarian there. Uh, but I think she's a more complex character than we get. I think you see some of it in the performance. 
but I think that she would have a lot of experiences that we have not really touched upon. So, I mean, there's a lot of characters there that I think, if done right, their backstories would be very interesting to, to read up on. Uh, surprisingly, I don't feel nearly the same way about Cornelius as I do about Zira, as far as that goes. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I, I see him as more black and white. I what, think, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. You know, I, I, I think of, you know, in, in, uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes when he basically admits to being henpecked, and that's yeah. kind of, to me, that's his character. He goes, he, he loves Zira and he'll do whatever she wants, that's it. that's (laughs) only when she lets me (laughs) yeah it's funny because even though i have said that uh that i I find roddy mcdowell to be the heart of the story i fully agree with you that zero is the more interesting character in terms of one who who should be extrapolated upon Uh, absolutely although i i wouldn't mind a story about both of them honestly i I just would love to see more of them and in and, and, and it's obviously not going to happen, but it, we're, we live in an interesting time when it comes to Hollywood because it's now possible, which leads to all sorts of ethical questions about should it be done. Yes, well, that's... <laughs> With that's voice whole... acting and CGI, they could very well do a movie called Zero Loves Cornelius and, you know, and, and have it bring back, have voice actors. Should they? I don't... No, but but they could, so... <laughs> Well, let's see what they well, do with, with James Dean's image in the coming year or two, and then we'll work from there on that. Yeah. Because uh, it is coming. Um, I would be interested also see, in seeing more – I would have been interested in seeing more of James Whitmore and James Daly uh, mm. when when they have their uh, their court sequence. I yes. would have been – you know, they, they are presented almost uh, – Their comic relief. Yeah. And, and – I think they could have been fleshed out. Now, you know, I mean, again, <laughs> I sit here in one breath talking about how uh, these, you know, I, I don't like these self-indulgent movies where they go on for hours and hours and hours. And then I sit here with, you know, a two-hour movie saying, oh, they could have done another half an hour on this and another <laughs> half an hour on that. So I guess I'm, I'm being a little hypocritical in that regard. But I would not have minded to see those characters fleshed out a little bit. So in answer to your question, uh, Rich, uh, everyone. Yeah, well, I get that. <laughs> so, I, uh, I'm looking at the time. I Unfortunately, guys, I'm going to have to run in a second. All right, well, I think, you know, as much as I, I love talking to you guys, and I really, really do, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm going to say I'll give you a little time to, to recover from this, but uh, will you come back and do Beneath the Planet of the Apes with me? In say a couple of months. Sure, absolutely. That 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 that's one of my all-time favorite films. Actually, I'm always happy to discuss it. I think it's underrated, and uh, I'm happy to extol its virtues. I think it's dramatically underrated. And when I was a kid, people used to say, "Oh, I like all the Planet of the Apes movies except that one with the uh, subways." Always. And I love that movie. So always. People don't watch that one. That's the one with the people with the weird heads. Don't watch that (laughs) one. One with Brent, and Brent sucks. And I'm like, no. First of all, the bumpy-headed people are the coolest thing in the film, and Brent's a great character. So I, I don't understand the vitriol, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll save that discussion for the next time. <laughs> Already looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to thank you guys for coming on. Uh, like I said, I don't. We don't have to go to the final question because uh, I think we could just all say it by the standards that I set for this podcast. It's yours. It's yours. <laughs> Uh, and then, 
I thank everybody for listening. And uh, as they say at the end of the uh, James Bond movies, Rich and Zaki will be back. And then we'll nice. put a little dot, dot, dot. In uh, chimpanzees are forever. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot, guys. I really do appreciate the time you spent with me here. Thank you. Thanks so much. And that completes my final report until we reach touchdown. We're now on full automatic in the hands of the computers. I've tucked my crew in for the long sleep, and I'll be joining them soon. In less than an hour, we'll finish our six months out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. By our time, that is. According to Dr. Hasline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. Maybe so. This much is probably true. The men who sent us on this journey are long since dead and gone. You who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. I leave the 20th century with no regrets. But one more thing, if anybody's listening, that is. Nothing scientific. It's purely personal. Seen from out here, everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. That's about it. Tell me, though. Does man, that marvel of the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother? Keep his neighbor's children starving? 